All right. Well, you can turn back to Exodus. We've been working through that book, though admittedly this sermon will spend a little bit of time there and a lot of time in some other places in Scripture. Uh, We just read through the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and that's where we are in our series of expositions. We've come to Exodus 20, and we've come to what is known as the summary, really, of God's law in the Old Testament called the Ten Words. This is the summary of God's law to His people, Israel. And I was talking with the elders, asking their wisdom, brothers, what do you think? Should we do this in a, the Ten Commandments in a sermon? Should we do it in a couple? You know, like love God, love neighbor, divide it that way. And then one dear brother said, why don't you do one sermon on each commandment? And I said, seriously? And he's like, seriously. And I said, all right. So our expositions are going to go in slow motion <laughs> by comparison. As we go through the summer, we'll be walking through each one of these commandments, drawing out its implications. What does it mean? What does it mean here in Exodus? What does it mean for us as a New Testament believer? And, but before we ever get to the law and start walking through commandment by commandment, I want to slow down and really set a framework for, well, how should a, you could put it this way, New Testament believer, a New Covenant believer, or just more simply, how does a Christian think about the Old Testament law? Does it apply to us? And if it does, how? Or if it doesn't, why? How should the Christian approach not merely the Old Testament, but specifically that Old Testament law. And I'm going to set the stage for that, Lord willing, here in the next two sermons. Uh, but I want to put out a case before you that I had heard about a few years ago uh, as, as one approach. Uh, Mega church pastor Andy Stanley, he made waves in the evangelical community as he suggested that as Christians, he said, we, quote, must unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. We need to sever our Christian faith from the Old Testament. And there was a lot of pushback about that, as you might well imagine. He claims he was misunderstood, and though his comments that he gave in a follow-up interview later that year uh, gave little to dispel our concerns. For Andy Stanley, he claims that many young people are abandoning the faith, but especially once they hit the Old Testament. That is, these people growing up in churches, they, once they go back to the Old Testament, they just throw the faith aside. And so then, in response to that, he clarifies his own apologetic strategy for reaching the next generation. He says, it's time that we face the facts and unhitch our faith and our practice from some of these Old Testament values that we can appreciate, he concedes, in their original context, but we really don't have any business dragging them into a modern context. Or again, he says, I am convinced for the sake of this generation and the next generation, we have to rethink our apologetic as Christians. And the less we depend on the Old Testament to prop up our New Testament faith, the better because of where we are at in the culture. Now, in response to that, immediately I would say, well, never mind that Paul charges Timothy to, in first, 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word. And he tells him to do it in season and out of season. And you have to understand, at that point in church history, the only word they really had was the Old Testament Word. Or, let's add to this, Jesus Himself preached the enduring nature of the Old Testament in the Sermon on the Mount when He proclaimed this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, "'Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them.'" 
4, verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then Jesus adds this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We cannot, we must not, if we're followers of Jesus, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Now, that's why we're going to be studying it, right? Slowly over the next couple months, Lord willing. And yet, though we might easily throw stones at this so-called shepherd, are we not easily guilty, at least practically speaking, of the very same mentality? That is, we, have, we might have the biblical sense to not say what Stanley said, but practically, we live like it. We spend most of our time in Scripture, but maybe exclusively in the New Testament. And when we do venture, dare venture into the Old Testament, we, we stay furthest away from those parts known as the Torah or the law. Such that when we even read through the Psalms, we find the sentiment so strange when the psalmist will say, Oh, how I love, and we might say, God's word, sure. Oh, how I love the gospel. Yes, absolutely. But he says, Oh, how I love your law. That seems strange to Christian ears, but it shouldn't be. Now, why does it seem strange to us? Why does that have such a dissonance with us? Well, admittedly, I think we have a challenge here. Admittedly, reading, understanding, and here's the real riddle, I think the challenge for us, trying to apply the Old Testament law isn't easy, frankly. And because it's not easy, because it's not on its face, very easy to do, we easily fall into two extremes. Some are, well, God said it, let's just take it all in, and we're going to try and follow that Old Testament law just as Israel tried to. And yet, you can very quickly start reading through your New Testament, and you go, that doesn't seem right. And so then on the other side, we, we careen over to the other ditch, you might say, and we say, well, I guess the Old Testament really doesn't have anything to do with my Christian life. I mean, even aren't the Ten Commandments recapitulated in the New Testament anyways? It's kind of like the Cliff's Notes of what was in the Old Testament. Man, I'll pick up the important stuff there in the New Testament. I had best leave that Old Testament law alone. Only when we do that, we do so to our spiritual detriment. And we handicap the Spirit by ignoring a tremendous tool that the Spirit has given us, that He's inspired and remained for us for our spiritual growth. And it is specifically the Old Testament law. See, this law still speaks, and it even speaks today powerfully in a believer's life. But before we can unpack that, we got to ask questions, well, how does that work? How does it apply to us, and what does it say? And so over the next two weeks here, Lord willing, we're going to see six things the law still teaches us, still directs us in, even as New Testament Christians. That is, the summary of this past next two weeks will be, God's law still speaks, still directs, still points, still teaches us. Namely, where, where life is found and, and even how we ought to live. Those answers are found 
in the Old Testament law. So the issue or question for us is, God's law is still teaching, still pointing, still directing. The question is, are you going to listen? Because if we're listening, here's what we're going to hear first. What does God's law teach us? The first thing we must see is that God's law teaches us about God's character. We go to the Old Testament law and we discover what God's like. And we'll see that first as we begin in Exodus 19, actually. So if you're not there, turn to Exodus chapter 19. The first thing we must recognize is that this law teaches us about who God is, what He's like. It teaches us what, practically speaking, what the holy character of God looks like lived out in a believer's life. And we have already seen, as we've been walking through Exodus, a hint of this as God first brings Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai to meet God. So we've been walking through Exodus. We started with God's people enslaved in Egypt. God miraculously delivers them out of Egypt. And He says here in Exodus 19, I've brought you to Myself. He's brought them to Mount Sinai where He's about to give them the law. But even as you look in Exodus 19, verse 4, again, notice what he says. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm bringing you into this special relationship with me. And it's special because it's exclusive. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 5. You, you, Israel, shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. He's saying, I have claimed all the world, but I've chosen and redeemed and saved you, Israel. You're my people. You are in a special relationship with me that no other people on the earth is in. Now, we have seen, though, with this special relationship, yes, it's a privilege, but it's a privileged relationship that comes with responsibilities. It's a stewardship. This is not a friends with benefits kind of thing. This is far more like a marriage, an exclusive spiritual union that has exclusive rights and privileges to be sure, but with it necessary responsibilities and commitments. And what are they? Well, we looked at these, of course, but look at verse 6. He sums up, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's what's going to happen. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he says about Israel. So in this privileged status of their relationship with God, the responsibility is they're going to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to mediate God's presence and His blessing to the nations, to the world. They're going to live out to the world what God's like. The world can figure out what God's like by looking at Israel. This was the point. And no small part of that was this, the very covenant and laws that God gave to Israel. How was the world going to discover the character of God through this kingdom of priests? Because these people were going to live out the laws and statutes and commands from God. 
Because that's what follows. As here, he's saying here, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's going to define you? He says, my law is going to define you. So as we turn to chapter 20, he lays out the Ten Commandments, the summary of the law. And then in 21, 22, 23, 24, he starts giving the specifics of the law. And then he sets up the, the whole system through the end of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is giving the specifics of how they will live. So what's the point? In no small part or way... By obedience to this law, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, by obedience to these commands, Israel is going to show to the world that they're different, that they are God's special people, that they are God's, and how that is, they are God's people, and how will that be seen? Because they have His law. To show you this further, turn with me to the next book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus, where... To put you in the timeline of Israel, they're still at the foot of Mount Sinai in the book of Leviticus. So you look at the book of Leviticus in your Bible, all of these laws, they are being given still at Mount Sinai before they ever get to the promised land. And as we look over to Leviticus chapter 18, we have an explanation for what it means that they are the special people of God. Yes, they're a kingdom of priests, but we also heard they are a holy nation. Well, what does it mean to be a holy nation? That's what the book of Leviticus is telling you. In large measure, this means Israel is going to be, if it's holy, it's different. They're going to be set apart from the world. So now look at Exodus chapter 18, just here in the beginning. And even before we begin, you might notice at least the ESV Bible has the heading here for this section, Unlawful Sexual Relations. So as you just glance through chapter 18, it just lists numerous deviant sexual relationships from incest to homosexuality to bestiality. The, the, chapter 18 is all about laws, and there are laws about sex. But before we get to the specifics of those laws, notice why God gives these laws to them. Why does God give them these restrictions? Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. This is where it all begins. You're my people, and I'm your God. And so this is going to change everything about you. Verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. In other words, you're not going to live like the world. You're not going to live like the world following the world rules. Whether it was the pagan Egyptians from where you came from when you were enslaved, or it's the lurid Canaanites in whose place you're going to go. You can't be just like them. Rather, he continues, as he says there at the end of verse 3, you shall not walk in their statutes, but he says in verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. And notice how he punctuates it. I am the Lord, your God. You're going to be different. You're going to be different from the world, from the rest of the nations. Why? Because I am the Lord, your God. And how are you going to show that difference? Because you're going to walk in my law. You're not going to live by their rules. You're going to live by God's rules. You know, it's like the child that comes up to you in your home and, you know, let's say however old they are, 
and they want to ask you something, something that you won't give them, you know, keys to the car, uh, give them a cell phone. And when you say, no, honey, I'm not going to give you a cell phone at 29, you know, whatever the age is limit you say for your family. <laughs> Might be wise, but anyway, we'll leave it there. No, I won't give you a cell phone until you're 60. And they say, but what do they say? But so-and-so's got six of them in his pocket at home. My best friend Johnny's got one. Why can't I have one? And that's where you as the parent go, I'm not Johnny's dad. I'm John's dad and Andrew's dad and Peter's dad and Annalisa's dad. I'm not the parent for Johnny Callahan. I'm the parent in the Zaman house. And you're a Zaman, and that means you live by Zaman rules. I'm your parent, not his. And see, those family rules, those house rules, they they say something about the family. And because even notice here, as God gives rules to his people about how they must live and why they need to be different, it's because the Lord is different. He punctuates each of these rules with this statement about who he is. Look at this. Let's look ahead to Leviticus chapter 19. And look what he tells them in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Now why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. you got to be different because I'm different, God's saying. I've chosen you. I've redeemed you. Your life must reflect something about who your God is. And so if God's holy, His people need to be holy. Because then notice in verse 3 here, God gives a command then about, it's a reiteration of something from the Ten Commandments, you need to revere your father and your mother. And then He also says you need to keep the Sabbaths. But then notice, how does He end verse 3? Why do they need to do it? I am the Lord your God. That's why. Or look on to verse 4. He forbids them to make idols, and then he adds, why do they need to do it? I am the Lord your God. And just glance down in your Bible throughout chapter 19 and see how the Lord keeps punctuating each command with this statement, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. Verse 10, leave something out for the poor. I am the Lord your God. Verse 12, do not swear falsely. I am the Lord. Verse 14, do not curse the deaf. I am the Lord. Verse 16, don't slander. Why? I am the Lord. Verse 18, love your neighbors yourself. Why? I am the Lord. Do you get where this is going? Look at verse 25, verse 28, verse 30, verse 31, verse 32, verse 33, all punctuated with, and I am the Lord your God, such that verse 37 summarizes it all. And you shall observe my statutes and all my rules and do them. Why? I am the Lord. Your God. To God's people, as God's people, have to live by a different set of rules. And He gives them these rules that reflect His character, what He's like. That's why He punctuates it and says with each command, I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy because I am. So, we see that His law teaches us about what He's like. 
But before we can move on from that, there's just a couple clarifications I need to make that we're going to expand on next week and in the coming weeks as we study the law. First of all, you need to understand these laws given to Israel were given specifically and particularly to Israel. And this means they are not applicable to every people in every place on earth. Such that, to give you one example, we read this. I believe it's Psalm 147. At the end, he says this. This is Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. What's he saying? I've given my law expressly to my people and just to my people. And who are his people in the Old Covenant? Old Israel? Or excuse me, Old Testament? It's Israel. They are the people of God. And so actually all these laws, as you move from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 34 and more, yes, they reflect God's character, but God's character manifests in a very specific time to a very particular people. And so what this means is you cannot just lift the laws of God in the Old Testament and just place them on any nation and any time on earth. They don't apply to those nations in the same way. And neither should you take these laws and just pick them up and impose them on the new people of God in the New Testament, the church. Why? Because for starters, we're a different kind of people, part of a different kind of kingdom than Israel was. Israel was what's called a theocracy. Maybe you've heard of a monarchy, certainly a democracy, but that's not what Israel was. They were not a democracy, not a republic. Things didn't go up for votes. God ruled. Theocracy is you have an absolute monarch and his name is God. He's your king. And what does this mean? Church and state are united. Sword and sacrament are united into one entity. But that's not the case for the people of God today. And it's not intended to be. Because you see this, the church is not confined to one ethnic people. It's not confined to one nation or one physical government or kingdom. What did Jesus say about us? We are a spiritual king, under a spiritual king in a spiritual kingdom. Our kingdom's not of this world, Jesus said. We're actually a kingdom that goes forth and infiltrates all the kingdoms of the world, preaching the good news of Jesus, making and bringing out disciples of all the nations. So what does this mean, practically then? In the coming months, Lord willing... As we begin this study in the law of God, and even just with the Ten Commandments, let alone the very more particular rules that follow, you cannot take these laws to Israel and then just apply them unthinkingly to our lives as Christians today. We're different people in a different time, and more importantly, we're under a different covenant. See, what's beginning in Exodus 20 and 19 is the start of what's called the Mosaic Covenant, or we often call it the Old Covenant. But why is it old? Well, because there's a new one that Christ has established with His people. And so then we can't and should not just take Israel's old covenant laws and apply them right back to ourselves. That's one clarification. But two, that does not mean then that we are without laws, without guidance, and without commandments to obey. 
and nor does it mean that this Old Testament law given to Israel has nothing to say to us as Christians, for it does. And we've been talking about it. It tells you how you should live and where life is found. And the immediate proof of that, in case you have questions, go look at Jesus' teaching or go look at the apostles' teaching written down in the Scriptures. They are often going back to the Old Testament law. It still applies today. But we do have to qualify how. But the first issue is this. Are then we listening to His law? Because the first thing we'll discover there is what God is like. But then as we do, here's the second thing the law still tells us. The law exposes our sin and our guilt. And really, this is a consequence of what it told us on the first half. The law teaches us about God, but then we consequently we find out something about us. And it's not all good. Because here's the first thing the law needs to tell you about you. And it tells it loud and clear. God is holy. You're not. And that's a big problem. And to see this, we're going to go to the book of Romans. So we are going to go to the New Testament now. So all the way to the book of Romans. And to set the stage a bit, the book of Romans is something like a missionary support letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. See, Paul had never been to the church in Rome before. He knew many people there, but he'd never been there himself. And he was hoping to go extend the mission of the gospel out far west to Spain. So he's hoping to show up in Rome to be encouraged and set up by the fellow believers there, and then go on and spread the gospel on in Spain. And so he sent them this kind of introductory letter about why they should support him and his ministry, namely because he preaches the same gospel that they believe and they preach. And he's most eager to do it. So look at that bold statement in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul explains why he's so eager to preach and even to go to Spain. He says, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But already we have a hint in there. Why is he so eager to preach the gospel? Because it's the one powerful message that can actually save people. Okay, that seems to illustrate there's a problem with people then. Yeah, there is. Everybody on this planet needs saving. As he goes on to explain in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what's the truth we suppress? That there's a God out there and that He's holy and that we have fooled ourselves to thinking that we are too. In other words, We try and suppress that truth, that we're sinners, that we're rebels, that God has any right to judge us or that He's going to do anything about it. And so that's where God sends in His law. His law to come in for all of us to show, no, we are all sinners. We are all rebels under the wrath of God. And so to make his case, in Romans chapter 1, Paul condemns and shows the guilt of all of the pagans, the Gentiles. And then as you turn to chapter 2, he shows the guilt of all of the the Jews. So then in summary, in chapter 3, that means we're all guilty. We're all under sin. And as he turns in chapter 3, Paul is like that unrelenting prosecutor, wielding the law 
showing command after command, you are disobedient, you are a rebel, you are under the wrath of God. No exceptions. And the summary of this is then in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3. He quotes all of these scriptures, again, with no exceptions. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No exceptions, no one does good. And then he says this in verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. For what result? What happens? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Or you could take that word accountable there and translate that guilty. The law proves it goes to show you you are guilty before God. Well, how does the law do that? Well, he goes on, verse 20. He says this, For by works of the law, comparing your works to the law, what happens? No human being will be justified in his sight. Before the judgment of God, nobody's going to be declared righteous before him. Nobody will come out through that trial innocent because the law will convict every one of us in this room as a guilty sinner. When you compare your merits, your deeds, what you've done, whoever you think you are, when you compare it against God's perfect, holy law, you will all be shown to have fallen short of His glory. You will be seen as a lawbreaker, a sinner, and that means one under God's wrath. That's what God's law is supposed to do. It's supposed to warn you. To show you, you're in real big trouble with a really big God. Because as he ends in there in verse 20, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But actually, the law does far more than merely show you that you are a sinner and a lawbreaker. It does far more than that. Turn with me over to actually Romans chapter 7. Because God's law comes in. And it actually exposes how deep the sin goes into your heart. It shows how bad you really are. Wow, Rick, this is really encouraging. I I can't wait to get into this series. You're sure making God's Word sound like it's a bad thing. It keeps pointing out our sin. Actually, that seems to be almost the objection Paul anticipates some in Rome to say. Well, he clarifies and explains, what do you... Let me tell you what I mean. Look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Of course, not at all. Why? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, what does Paul mean here? He does not merely mean this. He does not merely mean, well, I wouldn't have known what the rules were unless the law told me. He means more than that. The law does more than merely tell you the rules. Because look how he continues in verse 8. But sin, think there that the sinful bent and attitude in our heart, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
For apart from the law, sin is dead. Or you might translate it like this. Apart from the law, sin is dormant. It's lying asleep in your soul. It's in hibernation. And God's command comes into the cave of your soul, so to speak, with a big stick and stirs up that sinful bear to wake it up. And what comes out is who you really are. What the command, you shall not covet, stirred up for Paul, showed what he really is. A selfish, jealous, coveting man. And it's not that God's command made him that. God's command just exposed it in him. Paul clarifies, look at verse 12. The law is good. It's not the law's fault. He says the law is holy in verse 12. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, well, where's the problem then? Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin in you that brought death. Sin in, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You want to know how evil and sinful you really are? You can take the good commands of God, and you reflexively pervert them and do more sin. That's what the law shows. It's like dealing with your children. And they have that sinful bent in them right out of the womb. And if your kids are not old enough yet, right, we can all say, just wait. But you know, I mean, we see this as toddlers when we're parenting. It's like, son, here's the line. Don't cross it. And then what do we do? We cross it. Like, I wouldn't even gone there, but because you put the line, absolutely. Who do you think you are? But that's what our heart does. I was content to stay over here, but you gave me a line. I'm going to go cross it. That's the damage of our soul, isn't it? The sinful rebellion, it just stirred to more and more disobedience the more laws it gets. And it's not the law's fault, but that's who we are by reflex. So you see, then, the law does not merely point out your sin. It doesn't point out that, oh, you've broken the law a few times. The law exposes and draws out your bent on sinning. And that means you're far worse than you probably thought. Actually, by default, you have an allergy to God. You have an allergy to His goodness and His holiness. You ever been tested for a food allergy? You know, where they maybe take a Sharpie to your back and they make all these circles, and then they take what seems like 200 million needles and put them in your back? And then, and then what are they doing? Because they've, they've infected, so to speak, each one of those little needles with a little bit of whatever you're being tested for. And if your skin reacts to it, if it grows something out of that circle they made on your back, it shows you have an allergy. You don't like having that thing in your body. Well, that's kind of what God's law does. It's kind of the littlest, tiniest prick, and it just manifests your reflex to rebel, to rebel. It manifests what in you otherwise might lie dormant. You might be fooling yourself. I think this is where Paul was. You might think to yourself, oh, I love God. Of course. God's great. All glory to God. And then as law comes in, giving you a boundary you didn't want, and then what happens? The rebellion just comes right out. It exposes you. You have a God allergy. 
a holiness allergy, which shows you have a deadly spiritual infection. This is what the law teaches us. Not merely that we've sinned, but that we are sinners down to the core, to the bone marrow, to our very soul. Now get this, as we start thinking about this for Christians. This is part of the ministry of God's law always. That is, even as you become a Christian, God's law still confronts you, still exposes your sins, and it still calls you to repentance and change. That means if we're not being convicted, that's not a good sign when you encounter God's law. If you're not being convicted when you encounter God's law, that means you're falling into self-righteousness, which then the Apostle John says in 1 John, that means the truth is not even in you. Or we're like the rich young ruler. Remember him? He interacted with Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, I don't know. How about try and obey the Ten Commandments? And he said, oh, yeah, I kept all those for my youth. What else do I need to do? He was self-deceived, wasn't he? And to get there, what do you have to do? You either have to elevate your own view of your own righteousness, which we do, and then we also simultaneously have to bring down God's holiness, don't we? We have to water it down. So it no longer has any bite and no longer has any taste. So it'll no longer convict us, right? Because of course it wouldn't convict me. I'm a Christian. We become mere hearers of God's law and of sermons and not doers, which James describes that means we're like a fool who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he sees. If God's law is not bringing conviction, that is a sign that you're being spiritually hardened. For again, we read this about the Word of God, and you could put in there the law of God. Hebrews chapter 4, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you get that deep, things don't get comfortable. And no matter how long you walk with Christ, if you look honestly, intently, at God's law, it will convict. It will expose you once more. You are a sinner. It will. And if it stopped doing that, trust me, the problem's not with the word, it's with the sensitivity of your heart. Be careful. That's not a sign of Christian maturity. That's a sign that sin's getting a grip. The law exposes our sin and our guilt. But that's not all it does. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Because the law also, the law in and of itself leads us to Christ. And we're going to see this in Galatians chapter 3. So move right in your Bible still further. We'll go to Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Many ways, this is pretty similar to the book of Romans. He hits a lot of the same themes about justification by faith alone in particular. But it's a little bit different, because as he's writing the churches of Galatia, they were struggling with this heresy, this false teaching. And it's a very dangerous false teaching because it was so near the truth. Because here's what the false teaching was saying. you got to believe in Jesus. And all of us are like, yes and amen. But then it said, you need Jesus plus. And in particular, you need Jesus plus law obedience. Then you can know you're right with God. This is the legalistic heresy. 
And it still surfaces in many forms today. And why does this happen? Because we've misunderstood the why and what of God's law, what it's for. God's law was never given. It was never given to Israel, even in the first place, and it's certainly not given to us. It's some kind of holy ladder that by rung of good work, rung of good work, we can work our way, climb our way back to God's graces. It just can't happen. What do we see in Romans? We're sinners, right? You can't do it. Actually, that's the point. God's law is out there to show you your weakness. So you would look inside and say, there's no solution in here. you got to look out and find another one. And that's where the law takes us. Let's look at verse 22. That's where Paul boils it down there. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. There's so much in here, but we have to look here as a summary. Galatians 3, 22, he says, But the Scripture, or in the context here, you can think the law imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And this is what we saw, wasn't it? The law proves we're all sinners. It proves we've all been disobedient to God's law. So there's no way of ourselves to be right with God. We have to look outside. And it points us where the solution is. It points us outside to Jesus Christ. That's what the law's always been about. Despair in yourself and your own righteousness that you put your faith in Jesus, His work, and His. The law, the law directs us to Jesus. Look down to verse 24. So then, the law, it says, was our guardian until Christ came. Why? In order that we might be justified by faith. Sometimes that word translated there, guardian, is rendered tutor. Again, the older translations. That's an okay translation. And I think it's consistent with what we've seen. The law does teach us about our need for Jesus. But Paul's using a more robust metaphor here. Truly, the word guardian fits better. And what it refers to in the ancient context, the guardian was more like your kid's chaperone, or maybe at best your kid's bus driver. And what do I mean by that? The metaphor refers to this choice family slave or servant that escorted your child from home to school, and then when the school day being taught was done, the, the servant would take you back home. This is your guardian, the child's guide. The guardian here more takes the child somewhere more than he teaches him. And so to, to understand Paul's metaphor, what's he saying? The law takes you by the hand and goes to command after command. Shall not commit adultery. Oh, but you failed that. Shall not murder. Oh, but you hated in your heart. You failed that. Shall not steal. Oh, you failed that. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, you failed that. And he leads you down each one to then point you to the one place where you can be found righteous. And that means, as he says here in verse 22, he brings you to Jesus Christ in order that you can be justified, declared righteous, not by works, but by faith in him alone. The law takes you to the one place you can be right with God. And that's so important for our souls because our Savior does things that the law could never do. And that's why it's so important. It must bring us to Christ. Because we talked about what was this main problem that the law exposes about us? Our sinful guilt. We're guilty before God under His wrath. 
And the law can never take care of that for us. It can never remedy that. It can never take away our guilt. It can never take away the curse of disobedience. But Paul can, or excuse me, Jesus can. And that's where Paul takes us earlier, actually. Look up to verse 10 in Galatians chapter 3. This is his word to those who are trying to say they want to go back to the law, that they want to relate to God with how well they perform their Christian duties. He says, once you do that, guys, the only thing the law promises you is a curse. Again, look back to verse 10. No matter how good you think you are, here's what we read. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide, and the idea of the language there, does not continually remain perfectly abiding, and you abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The only way you can go back to the law and hope to be righteous with God is if you're perfect. You obey all the law of God all the time in every situation and that with your whole heart. Otherwise, curses be upon you. Why? Well, because the law is a reflection of His character. What do we learn about God? He's perfect. He's holy. That's what His character and only what His character is worthy of. And so that's what the law demands. And in and of itself, it cannot, the law cannot bring mercy. It only brings justice. There's no hope in a naked law that depends upon you, but the law takes you to the one place where there is hope, and that's in Christ. And how does that happen? Look to verse 13. Paul explains. Christ redeemed us. That is, He bought us out of from under the curse of the law. So that curse is no longer over our heads. Why? Because Christ became a curse for us. Well, how did that happen? Well, he bore those sins and disobediences, didn't he? He bore that sin nature of ours. And he was punished for it, cursed for it on the cross. For it is written, the rest of verse 13, as he quotes from the law, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I mean, it's beautiful. Do you see it? Even the law's telling you, you need someone to die on a tree for you. You need someone to be cursed for you, to bear your sins for you. That's the only way this curse gets taken care of. And of course, Jesus, when he went to that tree, he didn't deserve to die. Why? He didn't deserve to be cursed. Because he obeyed his Father, loving the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, all the time, always. He didn't deserve to be there. But he was there bearing your sins if you trust him. So that no aspect of the curse could ever touch you because he bore it all on that tree. His curse-absorbing, justice-satisfying, sin-bearing death on the cross for your sins is what gives you now peace with God, not by any law that you have kept. He paid the debt just as the law demanded in our place. Even the law leads you to no other conclusion. That's what the law is always telling you. You need Jesus. And so as we get ready to, to go and kind of deep dive, study through the law of God, you got to keep that truth on the forefront of your mind. 
Because you can't go into this law without Jesus at your side. You can't go in looking at the piercing law of God, but only with Christ at your side to remind you, yes, but I bore that curse for you. To remind you, there's nothing to fear if you're hidden in me. To remind you, but I've saved you to not stay there any longer. I'm here with you to change you, to bring you to repentance, to make you more holy as your God is. Because if you've noticed, as you read through the New Testament, we come across these great passages about salvation by grace, and it's all a gift, and it's all by Jesus, and we go, yes and amen. But then he so often right back comes and says, but I understand, I saved you to change you. I changed, or I saved you to make you different. I saved you to forgive you so you'd never be the same. Again, probably most well put by that marvelous word in Ephesians 2. You can't get any more clear about salvation by grace. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then what does Paul immediately add? He says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what are those good works? In large part, they're walking in Christ-likeness, growing in holiness, growing in conformity to the character of God we've seen in the law. So get this. Christ is not done with you, and nor is God's law. We'll see in these coming weeks, Lord willing, Christ by His Spirit wants to use His law to make you more like Him. So listen up. Open your heart to His law, but don't go in without Christ at your side. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a mercy it is that you, in your great compassion, knowing our frailty, would send us your Son. Lord Jesus, we praise you, for you are an effective Redeemer, that you bore all our curse, that we can have confidence even looking to the day of judgment because of what you have done. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've not left us alone, but that you dwell in us to even walk out the intent of the law to be conformed to the character of Christ. And so may that be evident in us this week in grateful worship and adoration for the great salvation you've given. Show us to be your people. Show us to be different by the way we live and love to our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.